Well, hello and welcome to The Hayden Clark Show. My name is Hayden Clark and I am excited for today's interview with Ben Stanhope, who is the author of Misinterpreting Genesis. Ben, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, man, I really uh, appreciate you taking the time out of your day to do this. Um, I want to say to the audience real quick before we get started, uh, you can find uh, Ben's links in the description below, both to his uh, website where you can see some articles that he's written, as well as to uh, the book that we're going to be discussing, Misinterpreting Genesis. You can follow the link in the description over to Amazon, and you can pick you up a copy of that. I promise you're going to want to get a copy of it. It's an excellent book, as you will see as we go along in the interview. Uh, and also to the audience, if you're, there's a, looks like there's a handful watching live, so if everything let me know if uh, things don't sound right or look okay because I'm using a new software that I really uh, like. It looks like uh, everybody can, yeah, we've already got some comments, so I guess everything is good, but uh, that's awesome. Well, Ben, like I said, I really appreciate uh, you coming on and doing this. I picked up a copy of the book, loved it. It's a topic that I really like to talk about or study about. I don't speak on it myself because I'm not an expert in, in any of these matters, but um, uh, I really liked uh, your your really liked the book. So yeah, thanks so much for writing about it. Uh, but before we get into the book, I thought it might be helpful for those who may or may not know you if you would uh, give a brief introduction about yourself. Yeah, my name is Ben Stanhope. Um, I have a BA from the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and then I have an MA from uh, Hamburg University in Germany. Um, and my degree course there was studying ancient manuscripts and I focused on ancient Hebrew stuff and wrote my MA thesis on Hebrew seals from the biblical period. And like you said, I run a uh, YouTube channel about like 7,000 subscribers right now and also a, uh, a blog, uh, which I believe you, you said that you linked. Well, I linked to the, I think the academia page is, is what I could find. Okay. I, I, yeah. I'm going to be completely honest with you. I didn't know there was a, a blog and YouTube channel, so I apologize, it's, but I'll, it's I'll, brand I'll new, update the description. So. Oh, okay. Well, awesome. The well, blog I'll is, the YouTube the, channel is pretty yeah. old, but. Oh, okay. I'll update the description, put those links in there as well so that the uh, audience can check those out as well. But uh, so tell me, tell me a little bit about the book, uh, just kind of where did the idea come from? What were you hoping to achieve? That sort of stuff. Yeah, so I was raised uh, in a missionary family, and I was raised young earth creationists, and I spent my whole life basically uh, just having worldview crises, <laughs> and trying to trying to figure out imagine. like trying to figure out how to reconcile the Bible with uh, a lot of mm. stuff I was discovering in science. Even when I was young, I read a lot of young earth literature, and uh, a lot of science wasn't very convincing to me. Yeah. And uh, what happened is I ended up going to. Uh, a Bible college. I learned a decent amount of Greek and Hebrew. I uh, started studying Genesis in particular very intensely for several years. And I discovered uh, a lot of important and interesting information um, just from reading tons and tons of other material um, from scholars. And I wanted to write this book in order to share that information with other people, things that you probably haven't heard about in the Young Earth Creationist debate. Um, the book has a lot of updated scholarship that you're not going to find pretty much in any commentary just because it's decently new. Yeah, very good. Um, to the audience, wanted to say um, if you enjoy the episode, if you enjoy what I'm doing here, you can follow the Patreon link in the description. I always forget to say this, but you can follow the link in the description over to our Patreon page so that we can continue to do stuff like this. Hello, I'm, I am back. So thank you to everybody that's uh, in the uh 
in the chat. Yes, I am back. It's been a while. Uh, I was telling Ben before the show that uh, we were in between homes, and so I was not actually living in my own home for like a couple of months, and so that's why I haven't been doing anything. But we're in our new house, and uh, my wife has given me my own little space to set up shop again, and so I am back and hope to do at least uh, one, maybe sometimes two episodes uh, a month if I can get permission from the wife to do that. I am in paramedic school, so time is... Uh, Stretch pretty thin right now, but uh, anyway, I wanted to give the audience that little update. Ben, uh, thanks so much for sharing that. Yeah, I didn't uh, grow up in, I guess, what I would call young earth creationist. Uh, Southern Baptist Evangelical was the house I grew up in. Maybe my parents were young earth creationists. They didn't ever mention it. Um, but whenever I became, well, I guess whenever my faith became my own, as uh, evangelicals like to say, um, I became familiar with folks like Ken Ham and, and others like that. And I thought, oh, well, that's the um, that's the pious thing to believe. And so I quickly attached to that. You know, if you take the Bible seriously, then that's what you believe. And I, I, I took the Bible seriously. So I wanted to, you know, I didn't want to be a, a part of the group that didn't. And so I too was a young earth creationist as well, but it didn't last very long just because, um, well, we can get into that some other time. This isn't about me, but uh, let, let's start with, with the beginning. Um, where all things start. But um, in the book, you talk a lot about Genesis. Obviously, this is the title of the big title of the book, Misinterpreting Genesis. Um, and this is a big debate within the young earth, old earth, you know, whatever you want to call the debate. But is Genesis 1 1 a description of creatio ex nihilo? And I guess you could tell the audience, you know, what that is just in case. But yeah. Right. So, so uh, right when you first open the Bible within like the first letter of the first word, Hebrew scholars disagree, like they're already divided on what it means. <laughs> and the issue That's is awesome. like, so if you pick up any English Bible off your shelf, like it's probably the translation will probably read um, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And um that's the traditional translation, but a problem with it is that there isn't a Hebrew manuscript on earth that actually contains the word the. Uh, the grammar is actually pretty complex and debated uh, all the way go going back to the Middle Ages, at least. And a lot of uh, Hebrew scholars have come to a different translation of the first verse of the Bible. Um, instead of a dependent or instead of an independent clause in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You have publications like the Jewish Publication Society Bible, um, which is the primary English translation used by Jews, they translate it as when God began to create the heavens and the earth. So it's not an incomplete sentence. And I understand that the grammar is difficult to explain like without showing it to people visually, but um, the difference between the, tra the traditional translation and the newer translation that scholars have been coming to in greater numbers is that on the first translation, um, the first thing God creates is the heavens and the earth. On the second translation, like it, when God began to create the heavens and the earth, and then it like describes the state, the earth being unformed and void and darkness over the waters. The first thing God creates is light in verse three. So the whole thing is just one run on sentence in the Jewish publication society translation. And in the book, I argue, uh, based off new doctoral thesis information, based off new discoveries in ancient Hebrew grammar um, from a scholar named Robert Holmstead, that I think the Jewish Publication Society translation is actually the correct one. And mm -hmm. independent of the grammar, 
one of the reasons why I think this is almost certain at this point is that we've discovered many um, creation texts from the ancient Near East languages like Akkadian. Uh, and they will open with this with the same really, really weird syntax of like, you'll have like a, this dependent clause with this long, long parenthetical clause and then a main clause. So it's just this big, long kind of run-on sentence in texts like Atrahasis and Enuma Elish, a text called Car 4 from Nineveh. So it looks like that was part of like a, just the genre standard in the ancient Near East. And it's so yeah. like, uh, it's such a weird formulation grammatically that doesn't occur like other places in the Bible for the most part that it's almost impossible this could have happened by chance. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I see what you mean. Um, you know, I, I think I've heard a similar... Uh, um, I think I heard Michael Heiser go through this before. He, to, he was the first one to introduce it to me, actually. Oh, there you and, go. Uh, so, yeah. And one of his colleagues, John Hobbins. And, um, oh, yeah. What I and, do want uh, to emphasize think, is... Yeah, go ahead. I'm not saying of creation from nothing is necessarily false. I'm just saying Genesis 1-1 doesn't teach right. it in my opinion yeah uh, that's just not what it's talking about that and that's another thing and I, I probably got this from heiser too i just like him on old testament for for whatever reason um but you know because i can't i don't read hebrew i don't have the requisite background knowledge of the old testament to even form an intelligent opinion on those sort of things but whenever i just read genesis 1 you know, in an English translation, it seems obvious to me that that just isn't the point of Genesis 1. Like, that's not what the author was trying to communicate. Um, whether and, uh, or not there was a material beginning to the universe just seems like to me that wasn't what the author was getting at. But it's 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 a very slight point, you know, in the beginning or when God began to create. Right. Like, it seems like a very slight point in grammar. But the uh, the upshot of all of this is that you can't date the universe if if the uh, the newer translation, the Jewish Publication Society translation, or what I would call the dependent clause translation, if that translation is correct, then you can't say that the universe itself is six thousand years old, because it opens up with uh, all the created matter is already there. Like you have chaos and void, it already exists, and then God starts off by creating light, and you don't know how long that stuff has been sitting around by the grammar of of the passage. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, which it which is a, it's a very significant thing because you know like there's that's a large margin of error error where uh, secular yeah, scientists 6, say the universe 14 is, billion <laughs> yeah 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 no but, it is if you're going to be looking for for science in in the in the biblical data yeah it's a huge deal but I mean I think that whole enterprise is as flawed right there that sentence looking for science in the biblical data I and mean, this is a thing that the young earth creationists often critique others of doing like right now there's some young earth creation. Well, probably not right now because they don't care about my channel, but you know, there's some young earth creationists who's saying, ah, this guy's just reading modern cosmology or e evolution back into the text. When really, if you're trying to say that the earth is 6,000 years old, based on this stuff, you're the, I mean, you're the one reading uh, science back into the text. You're trying to, to say that yeah, these authors cared about a material beginning of the universe. That's modern science right there. Yeah. So like theologically, I don't 
really mind if the Bible contains pre-scientific ideas. So I'm not like trying to defend it, defend it and make it concord with science. Yeah. And like, like you just said, like, I think young earth creationists will actually do that because they're compelled to like, they're consistent to do so within their own worldview. Like uh, you have. Yeah. Well, if I give examples, I'll start getting off on a tangent, but <laughs> we'll probably come um, around to that if we talk about cosmology. Yeah, we'll get there. That's cool. Well, uh, let's let's carry on. Um, in the same chapter, sh so should we take the six days of creation literally? And I'm sure it, it, that seems to be where the conversation always goes to. What does the word literally mean? Um, but what was the meaning of the seven days of creation? Right. So I think if we if we like built a time machine and we abducted the author of Genesis and we asked him like. Are the seven days literal? He'd he'd just be like, yes, of course they are. Like it's pretty obvious in the text that it it's intended to be literal. Um, for example, you know, it just says evening and morning day one, evening and morning day two, and then we also have Ugaritic literature that uses the same formulation in a literal sense. Like it literally says, like the Hebrew, you know, Yom Achad. We have that phrase in Ugaritic, and it's used literally. So I don't think there's a doubt about that. The problem with the question you have to ask then is, do people theologically have to believe that the earth was literally created in six days like the ancient author believed? And the problem with that is that, for example, the Bible contains references to evil eye magic um, in both Hebrew and Greek, in both Hebrew and Greek texts like the Ophthalmos uh, Panaros, I think, in uh, Greek. And then in, in Hebrew, it's the Ain Ra throughout texts like Proverbs and the Psalms. And I think if we were to ask that individual, hey, do you believe in evil eye magic literally? He'd say yes, because everyone in the ancient world did. Um, I also point out in the book, like, there are passages in the Bible, and if people that have had Hebrew will recognize this, um, where it talks about how people think with their kidneys. <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. So there's no word for brain in the Hebrew Bible. Um, people in the ancient world right. did not. People in the, uh, let me correct myself, in the ancient Near Eastern world, like Egypt, Mesopotamia, didn't know what brain, what the brain was for. Like for the, for example, the Egyptians would pull it out of the body when they would mummify someone, but they believe the kidneys and the hearts were in some sense, the seat of the consciousness. So, uh, you have that, for example, you also, I, I believe that the Bible contains reference to like a sky dome above the heavens, which is something that everybody in the ancient Near East, almost everybody in the ancient world believed. So just because they refer to an idea, like a pre-scientific idea like that, I don't think that you're required necessarily to believe that uh, that's scientifically valid. And to the question that you originally posed, what is the meaning of the seven days? Um, Going all the way back, so Genesis was written around the time of the exile. Going all the way back to like ancient Sumeria, um, so thousands beforehand, you have creation, you have a temple building texts which talk about how temples would be inaugurated uh, within a seven day time frame. Uh, we also have in the Ugaritic text, for example, Baal builds his palace in seven days. Um, Seven days was seems to have been a typical inauguration period for a temple in the ancient Near East. And it had been for going back thousands of years. And every scholar, every Old Testament scholar that I know of that I've read on the subject agrees, like it's not really contested that Genesis 1 is a temple building text. Um, yeah. When you look at 
Solomon's temple being built, when you see the tabernacle being built, there are little snippets where it'll quote Genesis, where, where Genesis will quote, quote them like they'll mutually refer to each other. So I think the reason that the seven days were selected is not necessarily uh, primarily for like this scientific, like uh, as a scientific revelation, I think they're primarily chosen to communicate this idea that uh, the universe is Yahweh's temple, which would have been an appropriate message within the context that Genesis was written. The Jews are all sitting in exile. They had been stripped of the temple, had been destroyed. Uh, and they were in this foreign yeah. land, which was headed over by the god Marduk. It looked like Marduk was stronger than Yahweh to them um, within that context. So Genesis 1 is this declaration. Actually, the entire universe is Yahweh's temple, and it's appropriate, therefore, oh. that it would be constructed or inaugurated in seven days. Yeah. Very cool. See, I mean, to me, that's much more appealing as a layperson, just because like, I'm not opening up the Bible to, to learn about science. I mean, you're opening up the Bible to learn its theology. I mean, to me, it's a theology textbook. And so whenever you give me um, an interpretation goes through the uh, historical background and the grammar and all of that, and it leads to a theological point, I go, that makes much more sense to me. But I mean, you know, I'm an idiot. Yeah. I don't know any of that. <laughs> but yeah, so like, I, I'm not even you know, tempted by this pre-scientific interpretation of text. I'm like, there's just no way that the author intended that. But and, in some uh, sense that uh, you, you do have to respect young earth creationists because I think the text is obvious that they're literal. They, and, and I think their problem oh, is yeah, just the theologically. Yeah. Yeah. So like what I don't respect, for example, would be like these old earth interpretations that try to like find all these sneaky ways yeah. of just making them like symbolic and that sort yeah, of no. thing. No, there's there's old Earth creationists in, interpretations of Genesis that are just that make actually the same error as the young Earth creationists, which is trying to read in some modern scientific uh, viewpoint into the the biblical text, like uh, you know somebody like Hugh Ross. Not trying to throw shade on him, but that's just the obvious one. Yeah. But um, you know, each day is however many thousands and eons, and it's like. That author who wrote this text did not think that. There's no way. But in, in, yeah. in my personal life, like I, I was originally with Kent Hoven, and then Kent Hoven was kind of sus. <laughs> so I jumped to Answers in Genesis because <laughs> Answers in Genesis, as far as I'm aware, they don't even re uh, like relate much with Kent Hoven because he is kind of like really out there compared to even them. And then from from Answers in Genesis, I jumped to uh, Hugh Ross, and I'm like, I'm seeing all the same problems with Hugh Ross. That I that I was of answers in Genesis, a lot of things that made me uncomfortable uh, with like trying to scientifically make everything cohere. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, that's that's the larger point. It's like there's there's no point in trying to make this cohere. It's not. Kent Hovind, kind of sus. You heard it first from Ben Stanhope. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, let's see. So uh, in the same vein, uh, many young earth creationists say that the earth is like 6,000 years old. Now, it's interesting that whenever I asked you about the six days, if they were literal, you said yes. And I think that the young earth creationists would just have a heyday with that. They'll go, oh, well, then you can't avoid this 6,000 year old interpretation. Uh, so it seems to be based, but also on the, the ages of the people in Genesis. So maybe explain how they do that and then uh, where they go wrong. Right. So, uh, 
I'll just say like as, as a practical problem, if you're going to assume that you can take the, you're, you're talking about, for example, like the, the patriarchs, how they live like Methuselah, Methuselah yes. living to 900. They, they yeah, add all around those 900 up. years old. And, and it's, it's been a while they since add I those got up, into the young. Yeah. They add those up like, uh, like Bishop, like Bishop Usher in the middle ages. And they derive a date of the flood. And then based off that, a date of the universe itself. 6,000 years old and uh, the problem with that is that if you use that method you end up with the date of the flood at 2300 BC roughly and I've done this before you go on their website like uh, creation.com and answersgenesis.com and just type in the date of the flood and they usually land at around 2300 BC which is very 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 problematic historically it doesn't <laughs> seem very right old <laughs> it's around the sixth dynasty of the Egyptian old kingdom. Um, yeah. It's right on like, uh, right between like, uh, uh, ancient Sumer and then the establishment of the Akkadian dynasties and, and like Sargon of Akkad's conquest of the ancient Near East. Like this is a very, very conspiratorial and inconvenient place to locate a global, like life destroying global flood. Yeah. And so you get all these articles on their websites where they're essentially rewriting the entirety of Egyptian, Egyptian, Egyptian chronology and so forth. And cause you got to, the pyramids were built several centuries before this time period, even <laughs> they should have yeah. been destroyed by the flood. So it's very impractical. Mm. Um, it's, just, it's such a weird thing about, and uh, I don't mean derogatorily, but like, you know, conspiracy theories like this is like, you have to assume that the consensus of many different specialties is wrong and that you who's not a theology like yeah like Egyptology, i mean it just started cosmology yeah. geography uh hebrew bible uh all these eucharistic tech you know all this stuff is egyptology it's like you think all of these experts are wrong but you who's not an expert in any of these fields is going to correct every single one of them to me, that alone, they're going to say, that's an argument from authority. And I'm going to say, you're, you're damn right it's an argument from authority. <laughs> yes, yeah. it's not always a fallacy. But, uh, yeah, it's but, crazy. But I was just sitting here thinking that. But If if you go to, like, well, if you, if you open your Bible and you go to, like, Genesis 5, where it has these numbers, these genealogies, it'll give you a set of numbers. But the problem is... Um, we actually don't know what the lifespans of these people were like the, the figures that are given because they disagree in every major manuscript family fairly dramatically in some cases. So for example, the Masoretic texts disagree with the Septuagint, which disagrees with the Samaritan Pentateuch and the scribes have changed and moved around the numbers within the transmission history. Yeah. Which theologically you could take as indicative that maybe or ascribing symbolic significance to these numbers and they felt theologically comfortable doing this. Right. And the evidence of that would be, I mean, if you just look at some of the lifespan numbers, well, if you just look at the numbers in Genesis 5, for example, all of them end in either a 5, a 7, or a 2. And the chances of people just all dying, right. like that long list of people dying and having kids at like ages ending in 5, 7, or 2 is like, infinitesimally small yeah uh, <laughs> it would be not only that but enoch dies at age 365 which is like the number of days in a calendar or a solar calendar 
uh, Lemek dies at age 777, and there's several points in the narrative where it relates him to them. And then you have like really impractical, odd stuff, like Noah having his first kid at 500 years old. Like, <laughs> right. like why? <laughs> uh, well, so you know, that, if you look at the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, people could have lived long. Yeah. Whatever. <laughs> I have no idea, but I'm just guessing. So but, there's yeah. obviously like, uh, I mean, we know this from the Bible that the biblical authors love to use number symbolism. We know this from uh, Mesopotamian culture. Um, they have like, they have a text called the Sumerian Kings lists where the numbers are highly like arithmetically formed formulaic and stylized so it's just a typical aspect of ancient near eastern culture i think it's a mistake to take the numbers as like exact like the ancients probably did believe that people lived to be very old but to take these numbers as as exact and literal i think goes beyond what the bible wants you to do itself <laughs> um and i don't, I don't want to like get too far into it but like one example of this to illustrate the point would be if you remember the story of the call of Abraham and how he has his son, Isaac within Judaism, this is like one of the central miracles of the faith where Abraham had Isaac at, I believe it was age 100. And he named him Isaac because his wife laughed because, you know, it, it's a miracle that she could have had a child that late. Yeah. And that he could have had a child that late. And the text explicitly points this out. All right. The problem with that is if, if you consult the genealogies in Genesis, uh, Abraham's father, Tara, had a kid at 130. And then Abraham's yeah. uh, grandson. Let's see my notes here. Yeah. Abraham's grandson, Jacob, uh, fathered children as late as 105. Um, so it kind of. If, if you take these genealogies as literal and then it, it kind of like uh, erases this story as like being a miracle, it, it seems to contradict right. it. And I think the biblical yeah, authors would so have known that. it's so strange for him to have a, yeah. Yeah. So I think what's going yeah, on in the genealogies is that you're having either rounding or symbolic formulation or uh, there. there's a lot of no instances like Enoch's age at 365 where we have a good sense of the symbolic import that's going on. But in a lot of cases, we just don't know. Um, right. We just don't just have enough contextual material. Yeah. But yeah, I guess the upshot of all of this is that the flood, if there was, you know, a flood, like whether global or I don't think it happened during like around the sixth dynasty of the Egyptian empire. But, yeah. <laughs> uh, it's very, it's very ill advised to take these numbers as, as exact and literal. You don't have to do that. No, for sure. Um, so this is, this is perhaps my favorite. The, 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 uh, young earth creationists often say that, uh, Leviathan and behemoth, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly or not, that they were, uh, these, uh, animals depicted in the, uh, biblical text were actually dinosaurs and that the biblical authors were living alongside dinosaurs. So, um, first of all, what's the motivation for even trying to say that this is, uh, in a, why do they need to, to prove that humans and dinosaurs lived alongside each other? And then, and then if you want to talk about Leviathan and Behemoth, by all means. Well, they believe the earth is 6,000 years old and that man and dinosaurs were created on the same day, <laughs> which means that, which means dinosaurs had to have died out very 
recently, like within a matter of thousands of years, shortly yeah. after the flood. Like if you're going to date the flood to the sixth dynasty of the Egyptian kingdom and they believe dinosaurs were brought onto the ark, then we had dinosaurs probably alive in the middle kingdom of Egypt, uh, right. which if that were the case, I know young earth creationists will show artifacts that they think depict dinosaurs. And I critique some of these in my book, but man, it would be like in the artifact yeah, material and yeah, ancient yeah. texts. So it's understandable that they want to try to produce dinosaurs mentioned within the Bible itself. And they go to the book of Job chapters 40 and 41, which describes, um, well, I like to start off with Leviathan, which is just explicitly a, a fire-breathing dragon in the book of Job. And for those that aren't aware, like uh, Young Earth Creationists, websites, major organizations teach that, yeah, there must have literally been fire-breathing dinosaurs, aquatic or not dinosaurs, but aquatic marine reptiles <laughs> and possibly dinosaurs yeah. based on this text. And... All right, the reason why they're wrong about Leviathan, to make a long story short. Um, well, in Job 41, uh, verse 25 in Hebrew, it says that gods fear him, which is a pretty thing, interesting thing to say, say about like a literal animal. It says alim yeah. in the Hebrew text. Um, and Psalm 74, 14, which is another text that mentions Leviathan. It's a creation psalm. The context is uh, Babylonian. But it says Leviathan has multiple heads in uh, verse 14. So Psalm 74, verse 14. In Hebrew, it's Atarit You crush the heads, plural, of Leviathan, singular. Which is interesting because at an ancient Canaanite text, what you, what you could call Canaanite text, ancient Ugarit, um, there's a creature called Lotan who's spelled with the same consonants as Leviathan. He has the exact same titles and the texts explicitly say that he has seven heads and he's using the same mythological uh, ways that Leviathan is used in the Bible. You also have the problem that, for example, in Isaiah 27, one, it also mentions Leviathan and it talks about how like uh, God will destroy Leviathan at the last day. So at the eschaton, which is interesting because uh, Psalm 74 says that Leviathan was killed to create the world, which seems to be a contradiction. Like, mm. uh, first off, in Genesis, no killed as like this integral part of creating the world. Then in Psalm 74, a dragon is killed as an integral part of creating the world. And then in Isaiah, he's going to be destroyed the last day, whatever that means. Why is God beating right. up poor plesiosaurs? <laughs> So it's clear that there's like a mythological uh, background to this creature. And we actually know a ton about the mythological background of Leviathan because iterations of him or versions of him appear in every major civilization of the Near East. Yeah. So I think it's uh, the context of Leviathan and Job is clearly mythological. Job, Job as a book in multiple places mentions Leviathan uh, in other places other than uh, chapter 41 and uses him like in the same sense of like this Canaanite myth of, of God fighting him at the, at the creation of the But when you understand Leviathan, that he's this multi-headed, he's a seven-headed uh, fire-breathing chaos dragon who represents aquatic chaos in the ancient Near East, 
that helps contextualize Behemoth, who's hmm. mentioned right alongside him, sort of in literary dyad. And yeah, <laughs> so Behemoth is a bit of an interesting story. Um, Young Earth creationists typically claim that he must have been a sauropod dinosaur like a Brachiosaurus. And the reason for this is because the text says he has a tail like a cedar. And there's no other creature that exists that has a tail like a cedar. So what else could it be? It has to be like a Brontosaurus, for example. Those definitely have tails like a cedar. And... Are you still with me here? I guess I'll carry on until you can cut. So to begin with, Behemoth is probably mythological because Leviathan is. Um, Behemoth is unanimously mythological within Jewish tradition as well. Uh, Big, can you see. hear me? I'm sorry. I think I had a connection error. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, you're coming in good now. It looks like your internet is cutting out a little bit, though. Okay. The image isn't terribly clear, but your audio is... Okay, cool. Sorry about that. Had you... I, I don't know if you finished answering that question or not because it cut out. I'm sorry. No, I was just getting into finishing. But uh, So to make a long story short, if, if you go to... Um, oh, sorry. Yeah, no, go ahead and pick up where you... If you go to academic commentaries of Job, like specialist commentaries, like I just read uh, Edward Greenstein's commentary on Job, uh, Robert Alter has written a translation of Job. S scholars pretty well recognize that this passage that talks about Behemoth's tail being like a cedar is probably actually a euphemism for his testicles, for his male anatomy. And that translation is based off the fact that uh, that verse parallels his word tail with the statement that uh, with the statement about his thighs and the word for thighs is um, an Aramaic it refers to a, a term for the testicles so let me see if I can read the passage real quick he makes his tail stiff like a cedar the sinews of his thighs are knit together that word in, in Aramaic is pachad and in every witness that we have, it means the testicles. It's translated as the testicles. So since these words are in couplet parallelism, then it implies that his tail, that his cedar-like tail is actually his penis. And that sounds like uh, lewd, I guess, to a lot of people. But you have to understand the context yeah. of this is like ancient Northwest Semitic mythology. And this is probably a reference to like uh, fecundity symbolism. Um, just like Leviathan represents uh, aquatic chaos, it may be the case that Behemoth represents uh, the earth and possibly ideas of chaos and fecundity, that sort of a thing. Right. But I should say, yeah, in Jewish tradition well, and in ancient Christianity, um, they're almost always mythological. Yeah, for sure. Well, I want to apologize to the audience. I was having internet problems. I was wondering if that was going to happen. We got, I've got obviously new house, new uh, internet, but um, I'll, I'll try to fix that for future streams. Apologize to you as well, Ben. Uh, let's uh, a final question here before we go. But um, 
what advice, uh, this has all been really good. And uh, the book is, uh, he goes into much more detail, obviously, in the book. And so you should definitely follow the link in the description and get a copy of the book if you haven't already. It's very good. Uh, ben, final question before we go. What advice would you give for engaging with young earth creationists? Um, I know sometimes these conversations can get quite heated. What would, uh, what would you advise people if they want to in engage with young earth creationists? Well, what... It took me a long, long time to uh, change my views from young earth creationism. Uh, and it was a very painful process. Uh, but uh, what won me over eventually was just my desire to understand the Bible better. For example, studying its ancient cosmology, studying like it was really cool learning about Leviathan, his appearance in other uh, Northwest Semitic texts from the ancient Near East. So that was what drove the whole thing. Like I remember I read a book on like the evil eye in the Bible, which was pretty fascinating. And I would say like uh, to convince yeah. people to convince people to convert from, I guess, more simplistic views of the text, uh, I would just uh, encourage them to study those types of subjects. But I also wanted to ask you if you have, because I've been so involved with this thing for so long <laughs> that I kind of lack mm -hmm. an outside perspective at this point. Sure. Yeah. You want to ask me the same question? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. What advice would you have? Oh, okay. Um, definitely what you said as well. Um, I think hmm, for someone who is a Christian and therefore believes that the Bible is God's word, you're, you need to take an approach my advice would be to take an approach similar to Michael Heiser, who would say, okay, um, these young earth creationists are obviously wrong, but they have the, the pietistic answer on their side. You like, they, you know, they really think they have the high ground as far as, um, um, they respect God's word more than non young earth creationists, that sort of thing going on, that kind of dynamic where you can actually show, well, actually, that the young earth creationists are the ones who are reading modern science back into to God's word, when in fact, if you really want to get at what... So as far as I can tell, the, um, the best way to interpret any text, but the biblical text, is to do so in um, you know something like the historical grammatical context. Like if you arrive at an, a meaning of a text that the original author did not intend, then whether God, in, God had... Um, inspired that text or not, uh, you've arrived at the, the wrong meaning of the text. And so if you really respect the text, then you'll take all those things into consideration. And therefore, the you should um, not be a young earth creationist if you take the, the biblical text seriously. Uh, or if you have a, if you, I hold the Bible up here, that sort of thing is what I always heard as a Southern Baptist evangelical. So I think if you're going to get across to somebody like that, which is what a young earth creationist is going to be, you're going to have to be able to show that, in fact, I take the Bible quite seriously in my interpretation. And I actually think that this is, uh, my interpretation actually takes the Bible more serious than yours. So it shouldn't be about that because that's kind of uh, almost an emotional argument or something like that. You know, it should just be about the facts, ma'am. You know, the facts don't align with yeah. what you, the young earth creationist is saying. But... If you want to talk about uh, persuasion, um, you know you have to persuade the the whole person, and I think that a large part of young Earth creationism has to do with piety, 
they believe that it is the pious interpretation of the text to hold the young earth creationism. That's just been, that's anecdotal. That's just been my experience with the young earth creationists. And that's why I did it because that's, I was told if this is, we hold the Bible up here and because we hold the Bible up here, we're young earth creationists. And I say, well, I don't hold the Bible down here. So I guess I'm a young earth creationist. Um, yeah. And so I, I think was you have to take that demonstration. <laughs> yeah. I was Southern Baptist awesome. too. And like, uh, yeah, I, I, I guess I agree with you. Like, uh, it is easy to get like frustrated with people, but it took me years and years of like exposure to Michael Heiser, which is like the best source ever <laughs> for, for the types it's of like ideas that I've been discussing. Yeah. Yeah. And like, uh, <laughs> I guess you can't expect people to make huge worldview changes automatically. No. I kind of don't want them to, because if they're just like easily, then, uh, it, it, I, I don't want someone won over to my view easily. I want them to consider all, all the uh, aspects of it. But. Sure. 100%. Well, Ben, uh, this has been a lot of fun. Um, really appreciate it to the audience. If you haven't got a copy of Ben's book, there's a link in the description below to the, the Amazon link. Be sure to pick up a copy. It's a really good book. Uh, ben, thank you so much, sir, and I appreciate you coming on. Hey, I appreciate it. Thank you.